Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Laura Ha Reisman. Today we have Long Ti Bui speaking about his book, Returns of War South Vietnam and the Price of Refugee Memory, published in 2018 by New York University Press. Dr. Bui is an assistant professor in global and international studies in the School of Social Sciences at University of California, Irvine. Long, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. So just to get us started, I'd like to begin by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the topic. Uh, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Um, let's talk about myself. I did not grow up with parents who went to college. I'm very proud to be a first-gen college student who decided to go on to postgraduate studies, which is also very hard when your parents never finish high school or junior high school. You know, so... I think this is all very important to talk about because the journey to, become, to academia is very hard for many of us who don't have guidance. And so when I decided to pursue academia, one thing that really captivated me is that I can actually get paid and get a job for actually studying my community. And so you have an opportunity for me to study my family's history, which I never got to do because my family never spoke about the war. I never heard about how my parents got to United States. I don't know how they got here. I don't know when they came here. I just know that I'm born in the United States. I inherited the legacy of war from them as refugees, and they never spoke about it. So for me, taking classes in Asian American studies as an undergrad at UC Irvine, where I was an undergrad and where I'm now as a faculty member, was eye-opening. It just opened a floodgate of memories and traumas and histories that I should have known, but I never got to know, including in high school where they teach about the Vietnam War, but they never taught you the Vietnamese side of things. And so I thought this is compelling. I need to do this. Once I went to grad school, I said, I have to do this. The first book is usually your personal book. So I consider it a testament to my interest in my family and my community. If you can actually tell me a little bit more about that. So did you, did you feel that when you were going to undergrad, did you go straight into grad school after that? Or were you feeling like, okay, I need to kind of do other stuff and then go back to school? Like, I'm just curious about your journey. Well, that's fantastic. You asked me that because I took one year off. And then that one year I joined a Vietnamese American acting troupe where we did skits. And that troupe is famous because it's called Club of Noodles. And it's well known for being the first and only Vietnamese American theater troupe where we take stories from the community and try to make plays out of them. And so that one year off between undergrad and grad was great because I, I worked as a, a, a cartoonist and a news reporter for a Vietnamese ethnic newspaper. I joined a Vietnamese theater group. I did a lot of things related for my community before I went into graduate school. And that really helps me thinking about what I can do in terms of research because Without that life experience that came before graduate school, I don't think my book would have been as interesting, my perspective on research per se. It would have been too technical, too formalistic. And I know that the arts and um, community 
uh, events and activities are all part of the holistic sense of being a, a scholar, like a public scholar. And so I just took one year off, and that's where that was a very formative time for me before I became a full-on academic. So sort of leading into your work right now in your book, so your work offers a very interdisciplinary ethnography, and I think that uh, speaks to what you just talked about in terms of your background and your experience in the arts. And your eth- the ethnography is very much about how war is translated, recalled, and expressed in the minds of Vietnamese refugees and their American-born children. And I wonder where you situate your work in the fields that you're already engaged with. So So, you know, Vietnam, Vietnamese studies, refugee studies, and other fields that intersect with your work. So I was just curious if you can kind of situate your work within the broader field that you work in. Great. I um, got my PhD in ethnic studies. And in ethnic studies, we're truly interdisciplinary. You study a topic, but you study from so many different disciplines. And so that book, that is a manifestation of studying under sociologists, literature scholars, philosophers, historians, visual artists. And so the book itself has five methods in it from oral history to archival research to discourse analysis. And there's so much going on. And because it reflects a truly interdisciplinary sense of things, that includes Asian area studies, Asian American studies, cultural studies, media, feminist studies, anthropology, the cultural anthropology, these are all part of it. And so when I first did it, it was very unwieldy. I didn't know how to bring it all together because we talk a lot about interdisciplinary, but we don't actually know how to do it. And people don't really actually respect it that much. They actually, they say they do, but when you go really interdisciplinary, they think you're going too far. And so I thought to myself, how do I bring it all together? Because most books are interdisciplinary, are only interdisciplinary in terms of their epistemology not quite their methods. And so I, I struggled with that, but I knew that in order to look at something that doesn't exist, I mean, it does exist, but in the minds of people like South Vietnam, you have to really go interdisciplinary and you have to study multiple methods, whether it's literature, whether it's film, whether it's newspapers and ethnography, you have to do all because it, South Vietnam is now seen as a ghost country. It doesn't quite exist. So if, it exists in so many spaces. And so I see myself in all these fields and I didn't know that I was part of a new emerging field called global studies. You know, we have international studies, we have IR, but global studies is a brand new field of study. And that's why UCI just started. I'm a founding member of this brand new department where the UCs, and within the UCs, only Santa Barbara has a department of global studies. UCI now has the second. So it's a brand new field that I I didn't think I was engaged with because it was just forming as I was going through these other fields. And so, as we celebrate the fourth anniversary of ethnic studies, I'm also part of a brand new field that sees culture, postmodernism, postcolonial theories as part of the uh, way of studying the world. And so for me, having a book where we study Vietnamese in France, in Afghanistan, in Vietnam, in the U.S. is all part of a way of thinking about globality, but also really grounded in Asian American studies as well. So we often think Asian American studies is very transnational diasporic. But we never quite think of it as global. And that's something that my work actually speaks to because it's, it's global in many ways. I had no idea that this, that UCI was one of two schools um, in the UC system with this global studies, actually. Um, so yeah, that's, that's great to, to hear that. So in terms of thinking about your work in that growing field of global studies, 
you also talk very specifically about, or you use the term Vietnamization in your work quite a bit. Um, and that seems to be the sort of major sort of theoretical thread um, throughout. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to or a lot to the um, to this term because I think it, it's it's so key to to your whole work. The term Vietnamization comes from the Richard Nixon's speech on Vietnamization, where he basically said, "We're going to basically pull out troops from Vietnam. We'll still support the South Vietnamese, but they had to take care of their own business." It's a very major military policy that's seen as a debacle, kind of seen as a type of subterfuge. Also, it's like, okay, we'll protect the South Vietnamese as they invade other countries as well. But I thought to myself, how interesting is called Vietnamization. It it says something about the word itself. Vietnamization seems to speak to a process. It's kind of a cultural process. And people think of it in terms of military policy of basically de-escalating the war and pulling troops out. I see it as what does it mean to Vietnamize a war that was kind of Americanized? And the question is like the Americans that we, you know, Richard Nixon said, we Americanized the war in a previous administration, but we're going to Vietnamize it in this one. And I thought to myself, what an interesting way, turn of phrase, to basically say that now the Vietnamese are taking over something that where the Americans should have been intruded in the first place. So I thought to myself, this is a, a gesture, a framing, a way of thinking about post-colonial studies, a way of thinking of a deferral of independence, a way of thinking of limited or ascribed or imputed sovereignty. So here, we're going to give you back your power. But in the meantime, this is on our own terms, though. It's a very strange term. And I thought to myself, this is a great term to think about Vietnamization today. What does it mean to Vietnamize the memory of the Vietnam War? Not just the war itself, because the wars, wars never truly end these, um, these days. And so the question of Vietnamization is a, a continuing process of Vietnamese reclaiming South Vietnam, of protecting it in a nationalist sense, of arming themselves uh, in order to liberate themselves and fight against communism. And also as a way of gesturing towards their own hegemonies, that we're going to Vietnamize Vietnam, not thinking about ethnic minorities or other groups that the Vietnamese have also colonized in their own way. So I thought it was a great way to make it a cultural studies, interesting lens to study post-Vietnam War uh, social life and realities. Okay, yeah, great. Um... Yeah, and I definitely see that throughout the the whole work. Um, you know, you you bring up Vietnamization, you know, over and over, and, and so many different sort of iterations. I feel um, throughout each chapter and and. and in many parts of each chapter as well. So along this line, yeah, how do you see this this concept of Vietnamization in bringing sort of disparate aspects of the Vietnam refugee and uh, Vietnamese American experience um, that you examine throughout your various chapters? Yep, there's, I have five chapters and they lay out different landscapes for thinking about Vietnamization. For instance, the first chapter looks at an American archive that wants to Vietnamize its holdings. It's a Vietnam War archive in Texas Tech, in Texas, the largest holding of Vietnam War stuff. But they felt that the archive was too American. They want to Vietnamize it, bring more, not just more Vietnamese documents, but Vietnamese voices in participation. And there was, of course, a lot of politics around uh, bringing in South Vietnamese when they're also inviting Vietnamese communists to come speak at the archive as well. And then at the very end, the last chapter, you have Vietnamese American youth who go back to Vietnam to work, and they're kind of Vietnamizing the landscape of socialist Vietnam in the sense that they, they're going back to the land that the parents left, and they're bringing back 
back a very South Vietnamese diasporic consciousness and imaginary that's superimposed or interlaced with what they see in communist Vietnam. So in a sense, Vietnamization is not just about South Vietnam, but it's about Vietnamese Americans. It's about the ways that Vietnamese fit in the narrative of both Vietnam and the United States and other countries as well. And there's one chapter, for instance, where I interview Vietnamese American soldiers, ask them, what, are, what is going on here in Iraq? Are, is Iraq another Vietnam? And for a lot of them, they actually mentioned the policy of Nixon's Vietnamization. It's like, we're leaving too early. This is what happened during the, the administration where they pulled out too early. We're not protecting our allies. And so there's different manifestations of this term, like whether in policy or whether in discourse. And it, it tells us that the, the way of making the world Vietnamese or asserting your Vietnamese in the world is still an ongoing process, hence the term Vietnamization, which is what Nixon said is a, is a type of promise of making Vietnamese free. On it. And they have to figure out how to do it for themselves. I'm, I, I wanted to get back to that chapter you're talking about in a little bit. But yeah, I also wanted to kind of expand on your discussion on, uh, you know, the, the interdisciplinary aspect to your work. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the different methodologies that you use. You, you went through that a little bit briefly earlier. And I'm just wondering if you can expand on that and to tell me how it helped develop kind of your overall project. And in other words, how is the story that you're telling and the methodology that you're using working in concert with each other? Okay, so methods and also tied to narrative. Hmm. Okay, that's a, that's a hard one because we're, you're asking about informants and the type of people, what they're saying compared to what you're saying. I would say I try my best to weave in people's stories and ground them in that sense. So where I'm not trying to impose what I'm saying, but trying to bring out what they're saying in a way that illuminates my conception of Vietnamization and my sense of the Vietnamese diasporic consciousness and the South Vietnamese nationalism. Um, when I first presented this book to my editor, he didn't get it. He's like, I don't get it. There's too much going on. There's like five methods. And I was like, it, ha- it makes sense. And then he looked at it again and he read the manuscript. He's like, I, I totally get it now. I get it after reading it. So at first, when you tell people you're going full on disciplinary, like truly going interdisciplinary in the biggest sense, they don't quite get it. Even I had a book press contact me and they wanted, they were interested. They said, this is an ancient Asian American thing. They had an Asian American series and they didn't, they said, this book is too transnational and global. We don't know where to fit it with an Asian American series, which I thought was strange because I thought Asian American series already had its transnational term. So there's a press that did not get it because they said, this is not Asian American enough. This is to something else. It's neither Asian studies. This book doesn't quite fit in Asian studies. It doesn't quite fit in Asian Americans per se either, but it's truly open to the open horizon of studying Vietnamese people, Vietnamization, Vietnam War in the broadest sense. And I wanted to keep it that way because I wanted to show what it means like to not just be interdisciplinary, but also transdisciplinary or even anti-disciplinary, where you're just not following the, the old formulas and traditions of, and conventions of disciplines. And so when I, when I try to do this, I try to bring out um, the stories of people, what they're saying. For instance, I, I presented this book at some uh, talk and a student said, I don't like the way you're referring to 
these people are stateless. You know, South Vietnamese lost their state. They had to flee as refugees, and they, the, the state got collapsed and taken over by the communists. And he said, I don't like the state because they're real stateless people in the world. And I, and I said simply, that's not necessarily my language. This is a lot of these people are saying they're stateless. They lost their country just because they became U.S. citizens and they now Vietnamese Americans does not mean that they're no longer South Vietnamese. So to say that they're not stateless in the most figurative sense or literal sense is denying people the right to claim something. And also stateless people don't often get labeled as stateless anyway. They, there's many manifest legal complications of that term in general and refugee as well. So for me, I love the messiness of it. I love people's voices. I love the contradictions. Like, for instance, when we talk to Vietnamese American soldiers, some of them said, oh, the U.S. should not have gone into Iraq. That was a bad move. But now that they did, you can't just abandon these people. Stay on longer. So I love, I love that type of nuance. I love the ways that people go back and forth between time and space. They talk about the now, but they also refer back to the past. It's always a boomerang effect that when we talk to Vietnamese Americans about Vietnam War and their present moment, it's always a circular motion between the past and present and the future. The future that should have arrived, uh, which is autonomy or sovereignty for South Vietnam, um, which is also tied to the fact that it shouldn't have been there in the first place because there's a violation of the Geneva Accords. Lots of, lots of things that were unofficial, unattained, that, that the woulda, coulda, shoulda in history is all fantastic potentiality that I try to tap into when I use the term Vietnamization, but also when I try to interview people, try to bring out all the creative chaos that comes out of the war itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really think that, um, yes, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head about that in terms of, you know, thinking about, I think part of it is just, you know, how do you tell a story that, you know, requires so many different, uh, ways in which to, um, express and, and think about, um, because obviously not one particular way is going to, um, uh, really, um, do it justice. Uh, so to me, when I was reading your work, um, it felt like it really did make sense. Um, as I continue to read through, because, you know, you've got this chapter on the archive, you got another chapter on uh, a very close analysis of, um, uh, literature, uh, you've got, you know, uh, work on, um, community politics and interviews with, um, vets. Um, so it seemed like really, it, it really can't be just one, um, but all of these come in concert with each other to, to create one larger sort of narrative about, um, you know, uh, this post-war sort of experience and the diasporic community, um, at least that's how I read it. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, sort of going on, uh, off of that, um, uh, you also talk about, um, well, let me go back to the, the, um, discussion about the archive. Um, when you went to the archive, I guess I'm curious, like how, um, what were you thinking about, uh, when you were going there, like, did you have an aim uh, as to what you wanted to find? Um, yeah, what was your sort of objective in going there, and how did it kind of shift into the chapter that it became? The uh, archive that has the largest Vietnamese American holding is in Lubbock, Texas, and when I saw that, I just felt an immediate 
connection because I was born in Lubbock, Texas. There are not many, there's not many people born in Lubbock, Texas that travel around the world, you know, and say that we're, they're from Lubbock, Texas. I was born in Lubbock and, and that's, that's an unknown fact that a lot of people don't know about me. And, and the fact that the, the archive is there, I thought myself, I get to go back to my birthplace, which I don't know because my family left after one year after being resettled there. So I thought to myself, the archive, to go back in the archive is to go back to your roots, like literally, to go into deep dive into uh, your own history, personal history. So I went to the Texas Tech archive to look at Vietnamese, to look for Vietnamese things. I was trying to be a regular historian, but I found it so fascinating, the whole operation and mechanism of archiving. I thought to myself, why can't I just write about the archive itself? And at the time, there was a big move to thinking of rethinking and critiquing the archive. And so it's not something that you look for historical doc. I, I, I couldn't. I, I found a hard time finding stuff about Vietnamese American. I was like, where's all the Vietnamese stuff? And so the fact that it wasn't there tells me that there is something still there. There's a way to write about the, the lack or the absence of the Vietnamese. And, and I thought to myself, the fact that I don't know about Lubbock, Texas, and I was born there, says that there is a void that has to be written about. And it's not enough to look for history where you look for documents and try to fill in the blanks. You just have to sit with that absence and think to yourself, there is something to be written here. And that's why uh, I really credit and thank the staff for showing me around and showing me what an archive looks like, but also what the limits are of being in Texas, in rural Texas, <laughs> and what it means to do community work where it's like, we want more Vietnamese input and voices, but we can't find the Vietnamese. They're not here. We're very far away. And there's all these interesting intersection of politics with that. And so it's an interesting archive and it's also an interesting case study. And that's why I chose it as my first chapter because I thought to myself, how do Americans think about the Vietnamese and how do Vietnamese come into history? And that's where the other chapters about Vietnamese people unfolds after that. Mm, yeah, great. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading that chapter was how it was, you know, it was a way in which to kind of frame what it is to uh what it is to understand it as, as sort of national history, right? I mean, there's nothing more sort of official than um, going to the archives and finding material that would be, you know, assumed to be um, sort of official memory in some way. Um, and so it, to me, it seemed like you were using that in a way to kind of juxtapose it against um, the other sort of memories that you then um, narrate um, in the rest of your chapters. Um, and, um, so going off of that, I was thinking about, you know, sort of that second chapter where you go into detail about, um, the, uh, uh, Amy Fan's work, um, the reeducation of Cherry Chung. Um, and I wonder if you can kind of speak a little bit about that terminology that you use there, um, in terms of reeducation, um, and how you're using that, uh, sort of, uh, along with Vietnamization. Great. That novel is one of my favorite novels written by one of my favorite writers, Amy Fan. And the book takes place and talks about two families split up after the war and all the secrets they held uh, from each other in France and United States. And I did a close literary analysis, a very literature, literary analysis of a novel. And I thought to myself, what an interesting title, The Re-Education of Cherry Jung, a uh, young girl trying to become 
a woman become a medical student, but then remembers the war, feels like something's hidden from her. And to say, to use the word re-education is very political. We're talking about the re-education of soldiers after the Vietnam War, and South Vietnamese soldiers kept that way. To use it as a framing device to thinking about Cherry's effort to reclaim her past and her family's legacy is an interesting political choice. And I love Amy Fan's decision to do that. And people would think, well, what does that have to do with her? Because she's not a South Vietnamese soldier. And, and re-education is really simply is a form of Vietnamization. It's a way of introducing South Vietnamese whole sport trauma, also political um, difficulties and challenges into post-war, second-generation Vietnamese-American life. All of us born after the war, we don't know the war at all in the most, in the most intimate details, but we carry so much of that trauma with us from the past. So a lot of, a lot of people's parents were re-educated in those camps. A lot, of, a lot of fathers were put in there, and that carries over into our efforts to seek out that history, where it's, bu- it's basically butting up against the, the, the traumas of being in re-education camps. So we have to be re-educated in our own histories. At the same time, that education has to be very politicized. It recognizes the difficulties that a lot of people went through because of their affiliations. And so a chapter is dissecting so many of the ways that vitamization happens, but also re-education happens. Because when you re-educate yourself, you're really re yourself. You're not just learning about being Vietnamese. You're learning what it means like to be South Vietnamese um, from a generation that, that seems so far removed from you. Well, that, that leads me to my next question, which is about your third chapter, really, because, yeah, I do think that there's this, this connection about, you know, when you're talking about re-education and, you know, how that's really about Vietnamization, Vietnamizing, Vietnamizing. It's a tongue twister. (laughs) Yeah. And, and here in chapter three, which I found like to be such an engaging chapter, there's so many things happening really. And you've got, you know, all these different participants in this community body politics that you lay out that happens in chapter, I'm sorry, in, in 2009 um, in, in the art show, um, FOB Art Speaks. Uh, FOB2 Art Speaks. And yeah, um, I'm just wondering, and you yourself were uh, actually a key player in this narrative. And um, and I guess, yeah, if you can maybe discuss this chapter a little bit and yeah, we can just kind of talk through how, you know, I I thought there was this, you know, not only was there conflict between the generations, but also there's this sexism that was explicit in in the, the politics that kind of unraveled around this event. And so, you know, when you also talk about re-education, it seems like there's this certain of, I think, the younger generation is re-educating themselves in this way. But then there are all these other ways in which people are remembering and understanding South Vietnam, understanding the Vietnam War. And it, it seems to really just come, you know, just just unraveling. Yeah, just unraveling in, in this particular chapter, this event. Yeah, because gender and sexual politics with Think communities are very explosive. So yeah. if, if, if the <laughs> yeah. previous chapter was about the younger generation trying to reach back to the older generation, you have an instance in the third chapter of the younger generation asserting themselves as adults, trying to reclaim the memory of Vietnam on their own terms, whether they're as queer subjects or as feminists or as artists. 
but in ways are disturbing to an older generation. It's like, what are you doing? It's not, it's no longer about honoring the previous generation. It's playing with it. It's using uh, a very American or Vietnamese American lens to rethink the way we, on our own terms, and it, it can cause a lot of controversy. I always want, I'm an artist. I love experimenting with form. I love thinking about how can I represent South Vietnam, a country I don't know, but I, I inherit its legacy as a Vietnamese American second generation person. And so that is very controversial. That's why I got protested, called a communist, and along with other artists. And and it and it's very it was it was hurtful to a lot of people, but it shows you how it's not simply about learning the past. When you try to learn the past, but you articulate it in your own way, that's just not to the liking of a very older generation that can be very masculinist and nationalistic, then you have some problems that come up. And because of that reason, you have the art protests, and then you have the Vietnamese organizers of the annual Lunar New Year parade banning LGBT people. But then, but then it's a very militaristic endeavor. And then when they finally let LGBT people come back after protests, they say you have to come back without the rainbow flag. Just make sure you fly only the U.S. and South Vietnamese flag. So already you have so many ways of thinking this military relationship between South Vietnam and the United States that excludes so many possibilities and so many identities that is trying to emerge, trying to come out. So there is another, there is a challenge of doing that in a way that you're Vietnamizing the memory of Vietnam as, you know, the children of South Vietnamese nationals. So what does that mean to Vietnamize it in an artistic sense? And that is a controversial move as people interpret art in so many different ways. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and you also use the term um, dis- dismemberment um, as well as rememberment. And I wonder if you can also speak to that um, in this chapter, which I think is very apt. Um, yeah, dismemberment is a great term in the sense that it sounds violent because it's talking about dismembering bodies, which is what happens in war. But also dismemberment means, how does it mean to get rid of a member of a community? When you dismember someone, you say, we are removing you as a member of this community. So dismemberment can be corporeal, but it also could be very effective and emotional and filial. And so when you say rememberment, it's different than just remembering. It's piecing together different pieces of memory, but also putting back the members that were excluded into the body politic. It isn't enough to just remember in a psychic sense. You have to remember meant and bring back and do the work of actually piecing together the puzzle of community, of actually asserting yourself as a member of the community that wants to exclude you. And so I thought it's an important term to think about this member and remember it because Vietnamization originally meant the United States is going to kind of abandon South Vietnam. It's like, we're, we're sorry, we're your, we're your ally, we're your protector, but we will now kind of abandon you. And you're on your own in some ways. And then also the dismemberment of Vietnam splitting into different countries. There's so many ways to not just remember that, but also do the work of actually putting it back together. What does it mean to put the different pieces back together? And so I thought it's a, a, great, a great metaphor, a great analytic to analyze what was going on in the community. Great. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I was really sort of struck by that, that, uh, um, narrative where you talk about how, um, one of the, um, 
uh, former South Vietnamese uh, soldiers w- was so incensed that he actually uh, vandalized the actual artwork um, in, in a very, very sexist manner. Um, so, um, I mean, that to me, you know, certainly like speaks to the dismemberment that you're talking about. Um, and I'm also wondering, um, like, what is the what is the community now? Um, if you know, um, you know how, you know. Do you do you see it as a community that, you know, um, is dismembered or is it more of a process in in these ways, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, moments in time where, you know, things are much more fractured and then other times they're not? Or, yeah, I guess I'm just curious how you see the Vietnamese American community in Orange County, you know, now in reflection. Well, I'm speaking to a very specific community in Orange County, which has the largest number of Vietnamese outside of Vietnam. So it's the epicenter, epicenter of the Vietnamese Americans in the United States. But they, this is where all the former political leaders are, as well as celebrities are. It's, it is the place to analyze Vietnamese Americans. But I think that the community is very diverse and it's very heterogeneous. It's always in transition. It's fragmented because we're constituted from refugee flight, but we're also a very bound together community. Like in that chapter, we talk about how the LA Times and the Orange County Register misconstrued what was going on in the community, the community politics. They took it as, oh, these people just can't get along. There's something problematic about them. The older generation is out of touch. That wasn't what the younger people wanted to convey. We are all part of the same community, but these outsiders were framing it in a certain way where we're just a total mess. And so we didn't like that. So in the end, the community is united. We, we are always going to be bound to each other in many ways. Even if there's infighting, it reflects the fact that we have so many things to work through, which like so many other communities. And so it is fractured, but it is also a community trying to put itself back together still decades after the war. And so the question I always remembers is who excluded, who gets to choose, uh, what community is, who gets to define community. Those are important questions as we move forward and as uh, more elders pass on, and as the younger generation actually becomes uh, older themselves. Hmm. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So I think um, I get uh, going off of that idea of uh, community, uh, Vietnamese community. Um, you know, the, uh, the other thing that really struck me was how you know one of the primary sort of themes that were not necessarily like very articulated, but very, very much implicit throughout your book was this concept of being sort of quote unquote losers of the war. And it felt that this concept was especially prevalent in your discussion on um, Vietnamese American soldiers and how they understand the Vietnam War and how they attempt at somehow redeeming the losses of their fathers by joining the U.S. military. So I'm curious how this I guess, yeah, first, if you if you can kind of speak to that. And then and I also was curious if, you know, how this this kind of what seems to me to be a very heavily militarized sort of masculine narrative of of what that means how is that how that is received by you know like the female demographic or anyone really that is not identifying as you know um you know a male heteronormative you know person in the community so yeah i was just that's that's my question you know it's a very male-driven narrative it's the military that's why in the previous two chapters i tried to lay out women's insertions and their their ability to narrate the story 
But in that one with soldiers, you have a lot heavily male interviewees. I tried to look for female interviewees and it was hard and I tried my best and a lot of them didn't want to speak to it. But it was mostly male in the military. My All the men in my family went to the military. I went to the military. My brother did. And so it's a male-driven narrative in many ways. And I try to think through the, the hyper-masculinity of it. I try to think through the gender dynamics of it. And to think of the loser is kind of like thinking of it as a masculization, you know, a masculization and victimization together. But the fact that they want to win the war in Iraq as a vindication, vindication of South Vietnam's loss tells you that there is a, a commitment to military <laughs> enterprises in, in, in a war that never ended as we, as we enter other wars that's, that appear and look like Vietnam. And so the question becomes, how do we stop these future wars? How do people narrate losers? How do they become winners? Do they ever become winners? And so that story is complicated in the sense that for um, Grand X Fam, who is the author I analyzed as part of that chapter, is a key figure in this. He's an incredible public leader. We think about a soldier who, who served in, who was a refugee from Vietnam, is a soldier in the first Persian Gulf War. Just an amazing person whose memoir of his life in the military is so contradictory. If you read that book, it just says one moment is screaming for the fact that he's proud to be an American. Next moment, he's, he's basically taking down American imperialism and taking out the American government. It is an amazing book in terms of its rhetorical <laughs> uh, pl- uh, ploys and its, its language, which, which is, uh, is so paradoxical. I found it fascinating. It tells you that it is a hyper-masculine thing. You read it, the tone of it is hyper-masculine, but what, the, what he's saying is so not rah-rah patriotic. There is so much nuance in those hyper-masculine moments. So even when I talked to the soldiers, it felt like they were committed to the U.S. military. They were committed to Vietnam, protecting South Vietnam, but they all rec- recognized the difficulties of the U.S.-South Vietnam relationship. They recognized the difficulties of being Vietnamese people put into a, what they call another Vietnam. They recognized all these difficulties, which I, which I love about my inner informants. They were just very wise and very eloquent in explaining the contradictions of even committing oneself to the uh, the mission of bringing back South Vietnam and protecting Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, when I was reading through that chapter, I was. It was. I, I also found you know this this um, memoir uh, so interesting as well because you know there was those moments that you were documenting about how he was really sort of um, unclear about what his stance was. Um, you know, one in, in one moment he is talking about you know how he's. Um, you know, proud American soldier. And then another moment, you know, um, he's kind of waffling about, you know, his positionality about, um, you know, the, the reflection about the Vietnam War, especially after he um, had um, received those, I believe it was letters um, or audio tapes of his uh, father who had passed away. Um, so, so yeah, so, um, you know, I thought that was a really nuanced um, take on, um you know, this, this community that I think oftentimes, um, is sort of, you know, looked at, um, in a sort of more, more of a two dimensional kind of manner. And yeah. And I think, so the other thing that I, well, so, you know, this comes to sort of your, your final chapter that I was looking, that I was reading through and, 
I was really sort of, I don't know, I was the quote from the Cyclo driver that you had talked with, I guess, well, first, yeah, so I'm just going to read a quick quote that you quoted from him. So he says, there's no South Vietnamese legacy. There's no American legacy. There's not even a communist legacy. From the top, everything looks global and modern, but it's always it always looks terrible from the bottom. It's been this way since the war. And so he really sums up, you know, this, this concept of, you know, there really was no winner or loser, but really only just the repercussions that people had to deal with once it was over. And one that in Saigon is, is really reflected in its global capitalist modernity and the kind of resulting class inequality that came out of it. And so, yeah, so I, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, uh, well, one, you know, how did you, how did you meet this person and uh, get him to talk about this? And I'm also curious what you, you know of in terms of the older generation of Vietnamese Americans uh, and, and their sort of, their reflection of Vietnam now, if they, it, it, at least with those who had the opportunity to return. I'm not sure how much conversation you've had with with that generation, but yeah. So that sequel driver, I met him because I was trying to interview as many sequel drivers as possible. And I just thought his story most compelling. At this moment, Vietnam is transitioning to a more urban city and they were, they were reducing the number of sequel drivers. So these people basically carry tourists around in their sequel. Um, and that's a very hard job. These people are older, they're aging, their bodies is, is just falling uh, apart in many ways, and they have to carry these tourists around. But there's too many, there's too much traffic now, there's too many cars, and so the numbers are dwindling. I wanted to capture this population. And I talked to him, I had the most, of all the drivers I interviewed, he was the most compelling, and I found his story so interesting, the way he said it. It was very blunt. His wife was gone, his son is gone, I don't know what happened to the other parts of his family, but the fact that he says that no one is a winner or loser because you have a man who has no pension, no retirement, works for a few dollars a whole day at caring people. He really doesn't see, for him, Vietnamese Americans who are now in the United States, they may have lost the war, but they won in other ways economically. And other Vietnamese in, in now post-socialist Vietnam who are now part of the capitalist reorganization of the country benefit too. And so the, so the revolution that was supposed to happen for the people never happened. And so those who live in southern Vietnam, whereas the country of South Vietnam used to be, are it depends on who who you're talking to. Well, and so in different communities, it's always different losers. I don't like the term, but people who don't win or get all the benefits of revolutions or post-war um, economics. And so I think it's apt to say when we return to war, who's forgotten? So the first chapter is about memory, going back to history, finding out where's the story of Vietnamese. And at the very end, you have the story of people saying, we're here. No one wants to hear from us. You think we're voices and we're all the people suffering, still struggling. And so I think of it as history memory cannot simply be about historical memory in the collective sense. It has to be engaging people and their and their everyday struggles to basically survive and be on their own. So I, 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 when I organized this book, I never thought about that organization, but, but we, when you reflect back and you finish the book, you're like, wow, that was a great way to tell the story. <laughs> it should have been originally that last chapter was really the first chapter. And that first chapter was kind of the last chapter. So I started with people's stories and ended with history, but I reversed it to make about history and end with 
people's everyday voices that aren't archived. And I think that's a pretty apt way in the book to recognize that we still have so many histories to uncover that are still bubbling under our radar. Yeah, no, I really thought that was actually a really beautiful way to end your book. This is a little bit of, of a broader question. Um, but so in going through, you know, your whole work, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what were the most sort of difficult or unexpected aspects in, in the research and writing of your book? Well, the most difficult part was actually organizing it, but also writing it. Basically, the mechanics of writing and organizing, you know, I find it hard to articulate thoughts where you have so many disciplines. I'm coming from multiple disciplines. In one chapter, you have to write like kind of like a literary scholar. We do a close analysis, and there's a particular way of writing within literary analysis and cultural studies. Then you do ethnography. There's a different way of writing. There's a certain style. There's a certain type of language and also literature that you have to draw on and theorists. And so that organization was very hard. And on top of that, you have to translate newspapers and people's stories from Vietnamese into English, which a lot of things cannot be captured in English, and it's not translatable. For instance, Vietnamization is, when you translate Vietnamese, it just, just basically means the flowering of Vietnamese culture or society. It just doesn't have the same, the same political, historical meaning when it's attached to the Nixon policy. So I had struggled with everything with the book, and as, it's a struggle of being first generation, it's a struggle of trying to write stories that you were not uh, allowed to access as a kid is a way of thinking across disciplines where the disciplines still are yet not open to interdisciplinary work. There's so many challenges. I found the book all full of challenges, but in the end it's fulfilling because we can see in the book what happens when you try to bring all the different charts and pieces together in some holistic way that tells a, a common story. And so I found all of it difficult, but I... It was not easy at all. It was not easy. But I find that nothing like the war is ever easy. And that the, the hardest ones, the hardest questions to ask are also the ones that you worth asking. No, I, I was really, uh, you know, it, in the beginning, I was like, oh, this is this is a work on the archives. Interesting. And then you went on to, you know, this other aspect and then another aspect. And by the end of the book, I was really sort of personally very impressed with all the different elements that you pulled together because I could see how much how much you well, one would have had to struggle with to try to create clear narratives, you know, for the reader, um, for all these different aspects that that really kind of build onto a, you know, a, a, a larger sort of comprehensive understanding and history of diasporic Vietnamese American community. I don't know, I, I think it was a really incredible book. And I'm just wondering, so what is, are you working on a project right now? Um, you know, would you, would you like to speak about anything that you're working on currently? Um, I'm working on so many different projects. For one, for one, one of them is, for instance, Vietnam War memorials around the world. I'm looking at the ways that different countries remember the Vietnam War because it's not just a war involving Vietnam and the U.S., but Canada, New Zealand, South Korea. And the question is, how do countries remember that war? Were they involved? It was a truly global war, but no one's really looked at the memory of it in terms of that global aspect. What does it mean for countries in Europe to remember the Vietnam War? So. That's one aspect that I'm studying. I, I, I'm writing about, I have an article that's coming out about Vietnamese American films in communist Vietnam. And these were films produced by the government, propaganda, but they actually bring in the South Vietnamese perspective. And so you start seeing the communist Vietnam 
government and one party system embracing somewhat, but not truly open yet to South Vietnamese stories, where they're slowly letting it come in and allowing it to percolate, but they won't openly allow it or tolerate it politically. And so the question is, where is South Vietnam today in communist Vietnam? And what does it say about uh, what is Vietnam's own transition towards embracing what people consider former enemies? And so there's many aspects to deal with all these things. And those are just two projects that I'm pursuing right now as I um, write and continue my research. Great. Yeah, uh, they, they sound amazing. I, I really look forward to, to reading them when, when they come out. Well, Long, I want to thank you for speaking with us about your book, Returns of War, South Vietnam and the Price of Refugee Memory, published in 2018 by New York University Press. I really enjoyed our conversation and appreciate the time you took to talk to us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I enjoy talking to you, too. And, you know, we talked about your book to others. You, you find new things about your book you never discovered. So just I'm just happy to talk to others about the book and learning more about my book and the process of it as, you, as I reflect on it now. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you.